Hey, community fans, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, consider backing me on Patreon and becoming a patron uh, for as little as two bucks a month. It is really helpful for me uh, to keep things going and uh, keep the podcast moving forward. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Alex, and this is Six Seasons in a Podcast. It's the podcast, if you've been following along, dedicated to having conversations with people behind the scenes, that my heroes, uh, your heroes, of the hit NBC comedy community. And I'm catching up with writers, directors, producers, um, to learn more about their experiences, because I don't know what a writer's room is like. You probably don't know what a writer's room is like. So I think we all have these questions. Today, it's my pleasure to talk with Megan Gantz, TV writer and producer, whose inc- uh, incredible credits include Modern Family, Last Man on Earth, which I wish we could just spend time talking about that because I love it. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. And most recently, Mythic Quest, which is now streaming on Apple TV and got to watch it. And it was fun. So loved it. Uh, Megan Gans, welcome to Six Seasons and a Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad to have you here. It's been, uh, you jumped right on uh, coming out and saying, hey, yes, I'd love to do this. And I appreciate um, the uh, the enthusiasm. It makes, again, makes my life more easy when I, I don't have to like, please, please, will you come? <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, you know, it felt so fitting to talk about the bottle episode right now for some reason. So I just couldn't say no. <laughs> for some reason, as we're all trapped in our houses, <laughs> yes, um, wondering if there's a, a monkey out there stealing all our pens. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, you know, I, first I want to just kind of get to know you. And um, I have some early childhood memories of TV. And I'd love to know, just, do you have like an early childhood memory, so, something that sticks in your mind? Yeah. Um, I remember watching Letterman when I, with my dad when I was younger. Um, uh, I know I watched it enough that I used to write my own top 10 lists. <laughs> so that was like some of my first experience uh, writing jokes. And I must have been, when I was doing that, I must have been maybe eight or nine. Um, and I was trying it. So God knows what those were like. But uh, I, rem- I, I think the reason that I ultimately got into comedy um, from the start was that my dad used to let me watch things like Married with Children or SNL or yeah. Letterman. Um, but he would always be like, don't tell your mom I'm letting you watch this. Um, which if you want your kid to be like fascinated with something, all you need to do is say, don't tell the other parent. Uh, yeah, I experienced that a lot with like Harry Potter and then those kinds of things with my own children. So yes, totally understand. Um, do you have something like one or two memories that like stick out the most? Do you have uh, the, the top 10, but um, is there something really epic that stick out, sticks out to you? I mean, I remember Molly Shannon on SNL was like a huge, mm-hmm. big deal for me when yeah. I was younger. Um, just seeing a woman do physical comedy and be so unbridled with uh, her comedy and, and so clearly unconcerned with her how she looked or that she was goofy or anything like that. Um, being a kid who is like growing up being sold, you know, as we all were this yeah. idea that like women are supposed to look a certain way and act a certain way yeah. and that nobody will like you unless you do these things. And I never felt, I always felt gangly and nerdy and weird. So then to see somebody who was being that on TV and then everyone loved them for that reason, that was just like, and it was a woman yeah. that was just massive to me. So I remember her being a huge deal. Um, she Terry O'Terry also for like the same reasons I, I used to, I did a pep rally in high school where I pretended to be the cheerleaders with another guy that I went to school with. And that was like the first time I'd ever acted in front of any crowd really. Um, especially like at my high school. So I just, I loved them and I idolized them. And then that, that whole chain led straight through seeing, um, uh, Caitlin Olson on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, being a similar type of uh, of uh, female comedian that was just so like mesmerizing, really, to me to watch. So uh, that's the sort of through line of that I remember as far as TV really impacting me. Yeah, that's great. Um, and for uh, for those who are Mass Singer fans, uh, Anna Gasteyer was on that, and she's another one oh, of the incredible. Uh, yeah. 
because uh, I'm best friends with Ken now. You know, do you know Ken Jong? Are you? Are oh you yeah, I do. Of course I do. <laughs> yeah, back. he's so sweet. I almost like emailed him the other day and was like, "Give me the lowdown on COVID nineteen. <laughs> but I listened to their podcast actually with uh, Joel. Yeah, yeah. Um, he so gave I me a shout out. He, what? A, like I've been in his uh, orbit for like five minutes, and I'm like. This man is the the greatest man in, in the world. He's so, the sweetest so nice. person yeah. you've ever met. I mean, just still, I get a Christmas card from him every year. Mm. I look forward to it. He's just the kindest person. I'm so, I mean, everyone on that cast is like, we're, I'm just so, so fortunate to have met all of them. Um, but yeah, uh, Ken is really special. Yeah. Do you have any particular shows that jump out to you um, that, uh, you know, made you love TV, uh, Airwolf was comes to mind in my book. Uh, Airwolf? I, yeah. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's an 80s show. Oh, gosh. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's uh, Jan Michael Vincent. Uh, he was pretty awesome. Okay. Um, there, there were some 80s shows. Um, there was uh, um, Boy Meets World was also stuck out. Sure. So, yeah, so. yeah, that's, um, that's seminal. <laughs> yeah. um, gosh, for me, um, I mean, I used to watch Faulty Towers with my dad. Uh, Again, like he was kind of my introduction to a lot of those things. Um, So that was a big one. The late night shows like uh, uh, SNL and I used to watch, I used to stay up and sneak watching Showtime at the Apollo um, and uh, just seeing stand up for the first time. I lived in a really small town in Michigan. So like I didn't ever go to live comedy before I, I watched it on TV. Um, That was, that was my way in. Uh, Um. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually used to when I was younger listen to a lot of comedy albums, uh, like stand-up albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love The Simpsons, and my my mom, uh, my so my dad passed away when I was like eight, and then my mom took over like what I could watch on TV and what I couldn't, which was a lot less, and she banned The Simpsons and MTV. And uh, Daria was one of the things that was like so like. Um, formative because I yeah. think I started watching it when I was like 12 or 13 maybe 14 um, and I felt like her I mean it was like seeing my <laughs> it was one of the first show where you're like oh my god that's me somebody <laughs> is writing my head but on the screen so I used to go to like the local YMCA and then walk on a treadmill just to watch their TV because they <laughs> would put on MTV um, and same with the Simpsons uh, and so those were like big and honestly I'm so happy that my mom did ban them because it made them so extra special and kind of made them feel really like adult and and forbidden wow that's that's really some uh, great insight on parenting um <laughs> if you want to have awesome kids so yeah just like hold away the <laughs> multiplication tables and be like don't look at these <laughs> nice. <laughs> they'll corrupt you nice uh, um so you know it sounds like you had a very formative experience with your dad that's pretty awesome um and with tv and so what um with tv writing then what do you love with uh you know the characters that you're creating for us um yeah i mean i i didn't really think about going into to becoming a tv writer i really always loved tv but um i just wanted to be a comedy writer and actually my first thing i wanted to do was write for the onion so i sort of saw myself i I was really into david sedaris and i really saw myself as just writing prose um i i've never been a very visual person like sometimes when i think of jokes i think of the actual words like i will see the words in my head and as opposed to seeing somebody say those things or uh, see a bit of a scene play out um so it was kind of difficult for me to think of writing for for actors um instead of just writing you know there's something so simplistic about just writing a paragraph and then that's what it is um but ultimately i just really enjoyed being around funny people and so i didn't want to be isolated and the best way to like surround yourself with funny people that you're with all the time is to be in a writer's room because that that's what the job is you know you're co- you're constantly surrounded by people and you're all working together for a common goal and so i think i just really like the socialization and i kept chasing that and being around people that i really liked Um, And that led me to from the onion to try to start getting on the, you know, Colbert Report daily show type shows, which Mm -hmm. I I didn't successfully make it onto either one of those. But I interviewed at Colbert, which uh, ended up 
uh, there's a number of reasons, but I ended up getting an agent basically through that process because once I got an interview, that sort of solidified me uh, in their eyes. And then they started basically saying, Hey, do you, have you thought about writing for TV? And I, and I hadn't really, but I loved television. I had things that I loved that um, I was watching. So I, I'm always chasing like the kind of obsession part of it and not like what the job is. Um, And that's ultimately what led me to community was that I just really loved the show. Um, When I lived in New York and I was writing on the on the onion um i became friends with donald glover just through the comedy scene there the stand-up scene so i knew him before he had uh, while he was still um i think still writing for 30 rock then and then he got on community and he moved out to la and i was still living in new york and i was watching the first season when i was in the process of moving out to la to write for um dimitri martin's sketch show which Mm -hmm. was ultimately the first show that i got hired on to um And so I had been watching Community because Donald was on it. And I just was like, oh, my God, I love this. Like, it just spoke to me. I just really, I mean, I liked it from the very beginning. But then once it started getting weird with Chicken Fingers and everything, I was like, I just, every episode, I was like, how are they getting away with this? I can't believe, it feels like the the network gods should be running down a hallway being like, (laughs) stop the presses. Like, what are they doing? So I just was really into it. And, um, and. I started following, you know, Dan on Twitter uh, because, and I'm following all the actors and following any of the writers that I could find. Um, and uh, I was just always sort of chasing that. That's like, that's the thing. I, I won't say that I specifically love story breaking over dialogue writing over script writing. I just like the, the being obsessed with something and being around a bunch of other really funny mm-hmm. people that are also obsessed with that same thing. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, uh, I think that's why you have such rabid fans, uh, coming around community. Cause we're all just like, we want this. We love this. Even after 10 years, we're, you know, uh, we just want uh, more and more of it. And what I loved about all of what you just said, you got me through like, I don't know, a page and a half of, of questions. It was so great. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it was so great. I love, uh, I'm efficient. Yeah, no, it's, no, it's, it's great because it's like uh, the best compliment I have, uh, received so far is that you just get out of the way of, of great, uh, people who have, have great things to say. And I'm like, yeah, that's, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so you talked about important things, um, which is a great, uh, show to be on if you are a comedy writer because it's just these bits. And, you know, I've watched a bunch of that, that show. Uh, when it was on and and i've seen dimitri in person um he did a, a thing with radio lab once and he was the mc and they did a tour really cool yeah he's his brain is fascinating i mean i that's sort of what attracted me to the show in general was i was just like is this guy like this all the time just the way <laughs> his his sort of you know he's always mixing words around and uh-huh. kind of like coming up with these like really and i i'll tell you from having worked with him he absolutely is like that wow. all the time like we would just be walking around the lot and he would see a sign that said something and he would just make a sort of rearrange some of the letters or make a joke about it and i was like wow you really can't shut that <laughs> off <laughs> yeah it's uh I think that's kind of dad humor, but like a dad with a PhD, you know, it's like, it's like really smart (laughs) dad humor. So, um, uh, so, you know, what, what did you take away from that first experience? You know, you've got, now you're solidified. Now you're on the show. Um, you know, what did you take into community from that experience? I mean, I, I kind of, the Dimitri show was, was an awesome experience while I was there in the sense that, um, I was there for the second season and they hired a bunch of writers who are really fantastic, including um, Levi McDougal, who I'm still friends with today, writes on Conan and Nathan Fielder, who's gone on to Nathan for you mm-hmm. and Andy Blitz, who wrote on Conan for like years and years. And like, I got to be around all these people that have worked on all, uh, Dan Mintz, who now is on uh, uh, Bob's Burgers. And, um, and so it, that was really amazing to get to work with those guys. Um, ultimately, like I did realize I was very bad at sketch writing. Uh-huh. So that was a little bit hard. And I don't know if it was just because I was around people that were very good at it, uh, including Dimitri and Michael Coleman, who um, was the showrunner. Uh, but I just was like, it's not enough time. It's not enough page space for me uh, to, to kind of get my point across. I've always over talked, but in the the hard thing about sketches is that you need to 
you need to create a whole world within about a page and then you need to pay off the game of that world for a page or two and then you need to twist that within another and then you need to be done so you're you're in this like i mean i think 22 minutes is a short amount of time to be to be given but sketches are even more distilled than that and um i just sort of didn't see it i, I didn't see it as being uh, me as being particularly great at it compared to other people that I worked with. Um, and there were also like a few hard moments of just my inexperience with the, I'd never gone to screenwriting school. I'd never been on a set before. And then all of a sudden I was thrown in. So I remember like, for instance, the first day I was on set, they were shooting one of my sketches and uh, they were setting up for the master shot, which is just like, you know, the wide shot at the top of the scene to sort of establish where everybody is. And um, but I didn't know that at the time. So they start doing this master shot and the actors are like fumbling through their lines and they're kind of like they're getting through their blocking, but they're basically just like not giving it their all, which is totally normal. Now I know that for master shots because you only use it for like the first line of a scene or maybe the last line of a scene, but nothing in the middle, you're going to cut into like closer shots of these people. So anyway, they go through the scene a couple times and I'm like freaking out because they're doing a bad job and not, you know, they're not saying the lines right and the jokes aren't landing. And so I'm saying to the director, like, Oh my God, you know, can we like have them? And he's like, don't, worry about a master shot and I'm like well if it's a master shot then we should absolutely get it right you know and that was just that sort of stuff is so humbling and I I was I didn't even have an ego at the time because I knew I didn't know know what I was talking about but I still it was so embarrassing there were so many times where I would be like being asked something and have to make an excuse and walk away and like quickly google a word or a phrase or something that I didn't understand so that show, what like I think what I took from it the most was just this sort of um, submersion into the world all of a sudden. It was sort of like being in a new country and just kind of try, like not speaking the language and just trying to figure it out as you go. Um, but also I kind of knew going out of that that I was looking for something that was a longer format. So I definitely started thinking about television. Um, uh, doing a sitcom episodes instead and then you get uh, community yeah it was um you know it seems like there's a way to tell it where it feels like it was very easy because the truth of the matter was it was the only show i applied for um and and it was the first show that i'd ever gone out for besides uh dimitri martin's show but it was the first network sitcom i'd ever been uh submitted Mm -hmm. for um but the the longer story is that like I aggressively pursued the show in any way that I could. So I, I wrote a spec only so that I would have something to, to, to show to community. That was what got me to actually sit down and finally write something. And that spec was uh, actually, it's always sunny in Philadelphia episode. Cause back then in 2009, you could still write spec scripts. Now you always have to write original, um, pilots it seems but back then you could write like an episode of a show that uh, currently existed but you wrote an episode and so I wrote an episode about D and um and I uh told my agents you know I want to go after community that's the show that I like so um they set up a meeting with me uh, at NBC to meet like their lowest level executive I met with somebody that looked about my same age which (laughs) Which was like, oh, this isn't good. They're not prioritizing this meeting, but all I, but all I did the entire meeting was just tell him how much I loved Community yeah. and like how that was the show that I just thought was so incredible and God, your network's so amazing that you have and that this guy must have just been like, what is your deal? But then, uh, <laughs> but then I also um, I had a, a manager whose wife happened to work for one of the producers that was producing Community, so I also met with her. Um, and then I also went to a channel 101 event that I knew that Dan was going to be at so that I could meet him in person. (laughs) So I like launched this like full scale attack on the show because I just had like, as I said, the obsessive thing, I had just pinpointed it as being not only the show that I liked the much, uh, the most, but the one that I felt like I could be good at. 
um, because it felt younger. It wasn't about having, it wasn't about families and having kids, which I was 25 at the time I had no experience with. Um, it was just felt like something that was in my wheelhouse, uh, having grown up loving TV and, and sort of working at the onion kind of gave me this love for, for layers, you know, as far as satire is a lot of layers and a lot of like saying one thing, but yeah, very meta that sort of, so I'd always kind of liked that, like in a way you could dumb it down and say geekier humor, but that's, I'd always really been into that, um, stuff that like almost punished you for enjoying it. Um, like I would say, like one of the most, if you're talking informative comedy experiences, one of my biggest ones wasn't even a TV show, but what, well, the first time I read Our Dumb Century, um, the Onion book, I was like, oh my God, this is so dry and like so, like it's almost hostile in the way that it's trying to make you not enjoy it. And yet it's so funny and it rewards somebody for taking the time and energy to focus on it. And that's what I loved about Community from season one was I was like, this is not a show for people to put on the background while they're making dinner. This is something that demands that you sit down and like actively invest your time in it and watch it. So I was just into all of that stuff. And I just knew like, I wanted to be in a part, a part of it in any way that I could. So, I mean, but it, you know, there's a way, as I said, there's a way of describing that. It's like, I just ended up on community, which I guess I did because that was the only thing I went after. And then I, and then I interviewed with, with Dan and I spent that entire interview telling him how much I love the show and didn't pitch myself at all. Just basically like fangirled out for an hour because um, I thought it was the only time I would ever get to be near anybody that had, yeah, mm-hmm. that had done the show. So um, I just wanted to say that stuff. And they it was sort of awkward at the end because they were like, OK, we've got to go. Like there's other yeah. people we're supposed to interview. Uh, but um, and now I'm realizing I'm going on like right now. But this is what I'm saying. I need 22 minutes. Yeah. No, this is wonderful. I, uh, I I can relate to a lot of that story and in, in how I pursued uh uh, and then in some cases, just kind of it, you know, like when Andrew came on, it was just like this moment with like, okay, it's just, it's just happening. I don't know how it's happening, but it's happening guys. And, uh, I yeah. felt, uh, um, so yeah, but I, I have actively pursued this process and, um, I can, I can relate to that. I think people can, you just kind of, it's kind of how, uh, um, Spencer got on Harmontown, you know, it's just, he, yeah. pictured this thing in his brain and he was like i'm going to do this and and he went out and did it um and so mm-hmm. that's a really great origin story to get us into um you being on the show um i think it'd be curious to know then like what were your expectations going in you, you hadn't done a, a true sitcom yet and you know your expectations are you know are what I mean, I didn't really know what to expect at all. I didn't, there wasn't even the rumor yet the community was a hard show to work on. Um, so I, and I had never been in a writer's room like that. So I had no expectations. I was just terrified. I was also like broke and, uh, <laughs> and at the very bottom of the barrel as far as like, you know, writers. I was staff writer. It was my first job. I was there to be essentially <clears throat> at that level, you're there to be part of the wallpaper. If you make a good contribution, great. You should shut up for the rest of the day because nobody is expecting anything of you. Um, so I, I didn't, I kind of, but I didn't even know that then I kind of just went in being like, I don't even, I didn't even really understand the, the hierarchy of you're a staff writer and then you become a story editor and then you become a co-producer. There's this whole like level. So seeing people's names pop up as producers and co-producers, I thought that they all had very different jobs when in, in reality, everyone is in the same room and they're all just being writers that is just an indication of their level within the show. And on most shows, it's also an indication of like how much they are listened to on that show or how much they should be speaking. Uh, for instance, uh, on community, like from the very beginning, I remember Dan being like, I don't give a shit about hierarchy. Um, anybody that has a good, best idea wins. It's a meritocracy, you know, kind of was like always pushing this thing of, Uh, nobody's more important than anybody else. We're all in this together kind of mentality. Um, And so for good and for bad, it kind of like just unleashed me to just 
obsessed about the show, but now I got a paycheck for it. Yeah. So I just showed up every day and I tried to do whatever I could do to help the show, whether that was breaking stories. Um, I started uh, being up at the dry erase board a lot because I have a uh, very clear penmanship. So I thought like, well, this is something I can offer is like a lot of times we would be talking for a long time about, um, you know, breaking a story about a specific moment and you can kind of get trapped in that where it doesn't feel like there's any forward movement. Cause you just been talking about the same thing over and over. So sometimes like having somebody that like puts it on the board, even if it's wrong and you have to, uh, erase it later like it's nice to kind of feel that momentum of like okay stuff is getting put up there the the page is no longer blank um which is the scariest way for a page to be uh so <clears throat> we're we're getting somewhere and i kind of now looking back on that stuff i realized that that was probably in a lot of ways overstepping a lot of bounds with the other writers with kind of people that were superior to me um, I didn't think about it at the time because I was just so uh, eager to be a part of this yeah. thing. And I thought it was helping. And also my boss didn't, uh, he encouraged it. He really enjoyed like kind of that I would participate that sure. much. And I felt like I clicked very quickly with the tone and the humor of the show. So um, it, it was it's interesting to look back on and like, cause I don't regret the way that I acted because I think ultimately um, it made me, it, it sort of gave me a bit of confidence, but knowing what, like where it went, I, I think in the future I would, if I was giving advice to somebody, I would suggest for them to like slow play it a little yeah. bit and like wait yeah. it out and feel out the room. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's one thing for Dan to say, Hey, this is how we uh, should act. But you know, you have people coming into that room. You know, Hillary had been on a uh, bunch of shows before that. Uh, you know, Andrew had been on a bunch of shows. So you've got people in that room that are very seasoned and, uh, you're coming in and, and, uh, I can imagine even from season one to two, uh, there was a little bit of turnover, but not too much. And so you have these, this group of people who've been working together for, you know, a year, um, putting in those hours. Yeah, and I was really intimidated by them, and <clears throat> sometimes I have this weird reaction to being intimidated, which is that I that I almost overperform because I'm trying to like justify my existence. Yeah. So that was like a real struggle sometimes of like not being too much. But there were also, you know, there were real moments where I did feel like I was really contributing, and that. I was like, I think everybody kind of realized we were all in it together, all of the writers. Um, not that we were in it together, like against Dan or anything, but it was definitely like there was one very clear leader. And then the rest of us kind of bonded together underneath that umbrella. Um, so there wasn't, I didn't feel a lot of infighting amongst the writers. And even today, like we still are in contact. And I think everybody has like a lot of affection in the way that you do with like, you know, people you've been in the trenches with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you didn't have to endure some of the first season, like who's in charge uh, stuff that they, they dealt with. I mean, you, yes. yeah. So, I mean, it, it's been alluded to and uh, you know, but you know, the, the everyone stuck together and uh, stuck around for season two and, and did a great job. So, well, season two, like, so, uh, the show that I'm that I'm working on now for Apple, Mythic Quest, um, that's the first time I've ever been on a season one show. I've always been hired onto a right. show once it's already kind of in production. Um, and I think season two is always the best season of every mm. show. Uh, comedies, I'll say, sitcoms. It's usually season two, maybe season three. But and I think that the reason why that is is because season one, it's like it's kind of like you're building a house. You've got to like there's a lot of grunt work that needs to be done in establishing foundations and figuring out where the walls should be. And it's like stressful and things fall down and people get hurt and they bang their thumbs and all that stuff. And then once the end of that first season hits, especially with something like a network show where there's 20 some episodes. But after you get to that first season, the walls are kind of up. You, you know what the house looks like. You're not changing any of that stuff. You're just now decorating the house and you're kind of making, you're trans, transferring it from a house to a home, which is like to say that season two, you're just 
you're exploring the characters a little more deeply. You're making pairings that you didn't see before. You don't have to be so one note with the characters because you're not, you know, in first season, you're trying to ram home, like, Britta is this way. Like, she will always act like she's always going to be complaining about feminism and, like, all that stuff. And she's just going to nail that, like, every... And you're kind of scared to step out of that box. But by the second season, you start being like, oh, what if this? What if we stretch mm-hmm. this person this way? Isn't this... And so um, I came into the show, and it was like they had already created this incredible uh, world and then we just got to, and every idea was like new because nothing, we hadn't done so much of it. Um, so it's a really exciting time to be a part of a show. Yeah. And you got to write uh, two episodes in, in that season. And um, uh, one of them is, uh, uh, we'll be talking about very shortly, uh, but you also wrote t- uh, two in season three and season four. Um, how did the writers' rooms change over those seasons? I mean, there was a lot of turnover for three, and then yeah, and then even even so, there was a pretty you know about half for season four as well. You know, so you you yeah. kind of endured some big changes. Yeah, that was that was a real struggle. Um, you know, you're you're trying to get a chemistry in the writer's room the same way that you are on set. Obviously, on set that doesn't change because we cast those actors and. And and we knew that they were lightning in a bottle, so we didn't have a problem there. But you're trying to create a, a writer's room where hopefully um, Dan doesn't have to be physically present in every room in order to get stuff mm-hmm. done. People that know the job, who, who, who can kind of predict what he what. Uh, Dan might like and what he might not, who understand the story circle, how to use it, how to pitch to him based on the story circle. All that stuff is it's learned behavior and you it takes a at least a season to really get that. So it's it's difficult when um, and that's what started happening after the second season. We started losing half of the staff every time. And it was, you know, it was it was challenging. Um, You know, season two, we had a lot of people that I felt like were so much of the heart of the show, including Hillary and uh, and Andrew and um, Carrie Dornetto and Emily Cutler, um, who stayed uh, actually uh, for season three. Um, and and it, it was hard to lose some of those people. And I and I understood it because some of them, you know, are parents or they were just like they had put in their two years and they were like, I can't do this anymore. It like, you know, it, it really kind of burns you out. And so it was really hard to not be with those people anymore, especially because we had gotten to this place of by the end of the second season, like where we felt like we were really jiving, you know, and, and there was this real vibe that we could like, we would have these um, punch up rooms and we would get into hysterics of laughing at each other. Everybody. Yeah. Of everyone, you know, yes. Anding each other's jokes and kind of, and, and for me, it was like, I remember days like that where I would, I would forget that, I, I would forget that I have like a physical body because I would just be enjoying so much watching these people work that I would kind of forget that I was also supposed to be working at the same time. Cause it was just, it was just so like, you just felt this electricity and we got really excited. And there was so much stuff we wrote that nobody ever saw that was just thrown away because something changed. That was also really funny and that we really enjoyed like weird runners and stuff. Um, <clears throat> so that was painful to lose those people. Um, going into season three. Um, but, you know, Chris McKenna stayed for season three. Andy Bobro was there. Um, so we had a few people that were, that had stuck through. Yeah, Andy was around for um, season four as well. Uh, and actually he was the one when I was trying to determine whether it would come back for season four, I went out to lunch with Andy because <clears throat> we were trying to figure out basically what was best for the show. You know, we, we'd obviously, we'd both been on it for a few years and, Dan had this constant refrain while we were working on the show, which was, you have to be married to the show. That was what he would say all the time, which is like, anything that you think is your priority is no longer your priority. You, this is your priority. And I was, you know, young and I didn't know anyone else in LA because I mostly, because I just moved out here. And I was on board for that sort of experience of like, I'm just going to immerse myself in this thing 24 hours a day. I'm not going to think about anything else. And, uh, the problem is that when you do that and you're so attached to something, it's really difficult for you to then 
separate yourself from it. Um, I was torn between kind of the loyalty I had for the show and the loyalty that I had for Dan, which was obviously complicated for me because season three was also the season as he's talked about. And we've talked about before where we had our sort of fallout and, um, I, the, the second half of season three basically was, was not a good experience for me. And I had made this resolution in my mind to not go back. If, if he was going back kind of, well, for my, myself, my own sanity, but also because I didn't want to be uh, a burden on the show. And I felt like my presence in the room was like a negative thing had become a negative thing for one, for a, a million reasons. But um, so I had made the decision not to go back. And then I found out that, that they had fired Dan. So he wasn't going to go back. And then once I found out that they had hired new showrunners and they were planning to go through with this and the offer came through for me to come back to the show, I went out with, to lunch with, with Bob Rowe And I was just like, where, what's the best thing to, you know, it was real struggle. Cause we knew, and we said to each other at lunch, anything that we write, people are going to hate and because of course they are like, they've fallen in love with this version of it. That's only, you know, that, it isn't exclusively from the mind of one person, but it is funneled through the mind of one person. And so therefore it has a very distinct like viewpoint and we're going to about to be offering them something else. Um, it's going to feel uncanny value. It's going to be too close for comfort. It's going to be a lot of things. People aren't going to like it, but if we don't go, then it's even more not the thing that they thought it was because now more people that were on the show from the beginning won't be there. So there won't be people in the room to be saying, Hey, that's not really what we, we do here. And we, we try to do this thing. And so we felt this like really strong obligation to the show and to the actors. And, um, and I just like, uh, at the end of the day, I, I just really wanted to keep working with those people, you know, with Andy, but also with, the actors who I loved and had grown quite close to over two years. And so I thought, you know what, like you can't, and I'm, and I don't regret it now because there can't be a season five without a season four. Right. Um, So, so whatever you think of that season, you, you literally never have to watch it, but it is the reason that there is a fifth and sixth season. Um, And nobody that worked on season four was trying to like ruin your favorite show. They were, they were trying to do their best, but ultimately like the, the writers for seasons, you know, for seasons one and two were, and three were hired by Dan. Um, He got to have a say in who was brought on to the team. Um, So even that part of it was like through his vision. And in the fourth season, they, the show was staffed by large. Nine out of 13. um, had been on the show at some point or, you know, Jim, I count Jim Rash in that, um, uh, for his episode. So nine out of 13 writers were on the show previously, uh, you yeah. know, and, and the, the episodes are directed, uh, eight, I'm a nerd. So I've counted yeah. eight out of 13 Tristram. Tristram or Jay. Uh, so I mean, the majority of the, the sh- of season four is, is really community from the past. It just doesn't have the Dan filter. And I think that's, yeah. And obviously that's so important. I mean, nobody going into it didn't think that that was important, but there was a lot of things that were, that were not the fault of the show. I mean, the, they, I don't think that Sony or NBC wanted to fire Dan. I don't think that they like just thought his ideas were too revolutionary and they (laughs) wanted to fire him for that reason. It had become untenable to make a TV show at the end of the day, it's a business and it be and it become something that couldn't be made. So they were looking for the version of the community that could be made, and we were all looking of that for that version too. Uh, the, unfortunately, it took a season to try to figure out what that was, and a, a lot of the problem was that there was there was a power vacuum. There's nobody that was really, I mean, there were showrunners that were in charge, but also you've mentioned like Tristram, for instance, there are people that had been on the show from the beginning that also were listened to and had good, valuable insight. And there was, and the actors obviously had been there from the beginning. So they had a lot of input and there was a problem at a certain point of listening to too many people and having too many cooks in the kitchen and and saying like, well, we don't want to make anybody upset. So we're going to, you know, and there's all these, 
that that became a thing and suddenly the the network is feeling more empowered than they ever have before because they've got finally gotten their way and so there's all these like factors um uh, feeding into it um that are not conducive to making the best content you know like um so but it was it was you know I, I knew going into it that it wasn't going to be received well. And I thought that that meant that I could avoid it hurting my feelings when it wasn't, but it's still like, you know, you don't ever want to feel like you're responsible for <sighs> ruining something that somebody loves, you know, and I loved it too. And I, you know, and unfortunately like parts of it for me had been ruined the previous season. And so I was going after reclaiming some of that love that I had for the show through season four. And I, and honestly I did. So that's another reason I'm not really that regretful because there were episodes of season four where I got to be on set with all those actors and it was fun. It was so oh, much fun. I, I bet. And you know, if, yeah. if anyone's listened, you know, I've defended season four, uh, because of all of these, you know, wonderful people who have efforted to, you know, make season four happen. And as you said, it wouldn't have, have season five or six without it and you know ultimately you know i've and i've had just did an episode with a, a friend and i had ranked all 110 episodes uh, yes again i'm a nerd um <laughs> but you know uh, you know ultimately you have to put something at 100 at 110 you know and so yeah you know th there are some episodes that i think you know from season four just they miss what you know, th that if they would have had that Dan spin, maybe it would have been a little bit better. But there are some great episodes in there. I love her story of dance. It's one of my favorite episodes from that season. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Halloween episode, there's, there's a bunch of episodes from that season that, uh, you know, the majority of it you can watch. And, and so I think it's, it gets that, well, Dan wasn't there, so we have to defend. And, and I get that. And no. I, and I totally get that. Yeah. And like the show is him, like you can't separate the yeah. two things. So I, I don't, I, it's not like I'm trying to argue yeah, sure, sure. for people to love season four. <laughs> it's just that, but what you, what you pointed out is really, but what you pointed out is like really smart, which is there, there are always going to be basically some dud episodes, especially when you're talking about network TV, where you've got 20 some episodes of television a season. I have the privilege now of writing on um, cable and streaming shows where we do 10 episodes seasons um and it you can throw out entire scripts that aren't working because it's such a small season you could think out a whole series arc on community we we tried to think of arcs but we were it was like constantly the indiana jones running away from the boulder i mean pr production was at our back all the time we had to finish scripts because cameras were rented and we were shooting things and so we were constantly struggling to keep our heads above water and i don't have to do that uh, on these shows now i can we can look at the entire season and really make a plan and then write all of the episodes first before we ever shoot a thing so you can really like think of all these things it's amazing that we had so many uh interwoven pieces of community that like runners and things that call back to previous episodes considering that that most of that was never planned out i mean huh. it, that was just a function of people being obsessed with the show and not having any i mean a lot of it was the writers not having outside world experiences so our only experience was the show so we just constantly quoted it to each <laughs> other so the sh the show became like the snake eating its own tail oh, type nice. thing but yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, they can't all be great. And that's also, I think, part of why people love television so much, because it feels more realistic. It's not perfect like a movie. Yeah. You know, it's like ups and downs, just like being with your friends, you know, not every, none of your friends are like amazing all the time, you know? Yeah. And, so. and it's great because uh, in, in that episode that I was talking about the rankings, um, the friend she had uh messianic myths uh as in her top 10 and that's like 108 on my list you know so <laughs> so i mean i think that's what's beautiful yeah. it's like these episodes can be meaningful to different people and you know i think there's a lot more people out there who uh, really enjoy uh aspects of season four so we don't have to keep beating that one but i i'm glad you got to talk about it and um we got to kind of piece together some of that because um you know, right, right from, uh, uh, the source. So that's pretty great. <laughs> um, a couple of things before we talk about cooperative calligraphy. Um, you know, you know, we've talked a lot about your time on community, you know, what's the most important thing you've like, think you've taken away from your time on community? 
the most practical thing I think I've learned was the process of doing spit drafts, which is um, Harmon had this process of basically once we had broken the story and, and usually this didn't happen the first time we broke the story, but community episodes, we would break them and somebody would write them and then we'd re-break them and re-break them and re-break them. And ultimately, like sometimes it would be completely different And the first story. You know, we would have moments that midnight where dan would say like what if this story wasn't happening to britta but it was happening to annie and we'd be like oh my god <laughs> um but but so we would re-break and re-break and then once we had a break uh, meaning a rough outline of what the episode was we would write all together sometimes something called a spit draft which is basically the fastest sloppiest draft you can get out so you have characters saying the baldest version of what you intend them to say mm -hmm. so if they're in a fight with each other you say you have them literally type out the dialogue i'm in a fight with you right now about this mm -hmm. um or you have somebody come in and you say i have a joke or this is where i tell you about that i established that the dean is doing this thing and you just write the worst version of the episode um and you fill up the pages as quickly as possible and you get to, you know, roughly you would get to about the length of the real document because you kind of, the way I do it now is I break down each scene to the amount of page space I think it probably deserves within the story. Mm -hmm. So if it's like, you know, anywhere between a page to three pages, most scenes are, if you're writing a six page scene, you're probably writing too long of a scene in a, in a sitcom. Um, but I mean, there are so, like the bottle episode, for instance, it was like one continuous scene essentially. So, um, so that, that wouldn't hold true there, but, but I break them down by like how many, uh, you know, you only have 30 pages or so, so you can kind of figure out how much you can portion to each scene and you write them out about that length and you get to the end of the document. And what's so nice about it is that it's a thousand times easier to rewrite a bad script than to write a good script without any, mm. you know, from a blank page. Yeah. Um, there's something so scary about that blank page and writing that first draft. And there was something really great about being in a room where you were, it was about speed and not precision. Um, and that was kind of because it had to be, because usually we had to get things, like sometimes we had to get a script out so that we could send it to production so that production knew vaguely what the show was going to be, the episode was going to be about. Right. Um, yeah. But then we, we didn't have time to like perfect the dialogue. So we basically would write out stuff like this, which is like the scene is something where Troy and Abbott are doing this. Yeah. And so that we would have props and stuff. Um, and that's been really helpful going forward because I've realized that like you can spend, a, you can waste a lot of time perfecting a joke that ultimately isn't a scene that doesn't function. Um, but you will disabuse yourself of the, of any, uh, of any lies that you've been telling yourself about how good your story is. If you write out the worst version of it and it's not compelling, because that means that no matter how many jokes you throw on top of it, like your story isn't exciting. It's not interesting to follow at its most base level. And so I always like to think of it like a cake where figure out what, cake you're making first before you ice it you know the the jokes are just icing you can put a million of those on anything anybody can write a joke but coming up with a story that really works and that draws people in so that they care about the jokes when they happen um that that's the real trick so i would say spit drafts was like the most practical thing. that's really really helpful and interesting um i have for catharsis reasons i wrote a i'm not a writer i will never uh, don't worry, Hollywood, I'm not coming for you. Um, but I, I wrote, uh, experience because I was a bank teller and, and worked in banking before all my, my, my early career while I was a professional musician and, and it was a very torturous time for me. So I wrote a, a script about it. I wrote a little sitcom about, about it. And your information is really, really helpful to, uh, uh, I don't know if I'll go back to it, but, uh, it's really been uh, a fun process to go like, Oh, you know, uh, so thank you. That was really inf informational. Yeah, well, it's the hardest. It's the hardest thing for me to do. Still, it's advice that I give, but it's very difficult to take because I'm I'm such a perfectionist. So I write slowly and very deliberately. Mm -hmm. I like 
a lot of times on my scripts I would take, especially with community, I would take the first day or two on the cold open alone, which is usually three to four pages. And then I write the rest of the script in the next three to four days. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, that was a difficult thing for me to get past. But now I really see the value of just getting it out there um, and making sure that you understand, like that you, you comb through the story over and over and you get your fingers on it and you really like know what it is and you should be able to remember the story without looking at your draft because it should feel so natural and so it should feel like the only story it could be it's like people talk about story like breaking sometimes where it's it's less about finding what's good and it's more about getting rid of everything that is bad like everything that's not helpful to the story you kind of get away so that the story the story just is and you kind of have to uncover it um because it should feel so natural that it's like hard to forget yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. I, I you know, because I look thinking back and I think my my script is mostly like bits and like funny sketches that of memories that I had, like, oh, this happened and we did this. And and there there doesn't seem to be that cohesive like, well, this is the the so what this is the, the why this yeah. matters. So that's really interesting. Thanks. It's also like a thing that I learned on Sunny, which is really interesting because they don't go by the sort of story circle model or any of that stuff or act breaks. They never talk about that stuff. Um, but they just talk about every scene. What does every character want and how are they going about that? And if you can't say in every scene, like what the character wants out of that scene, then there's really nothing happening mm. in the scene. You should be able to like boil it down to like, what does this character want here and how are they trying to get it? And a lot of those conversations, the things that we talk about aren't about comedy at all. They're more about characters and like, and, and certainly with community, we spent a lot of time just talking about why people would do things you know and and less about um what joke we would put in any one person's mouth hey everyone stay tuned for part two i'll have that out real soon where we do a q a on the episode cooperative calligraphy and talk more with megan cans it was a wonderful conversation it kept on going so i'll have that out soon